Hi, and welcome to SPEDCAST, a podcast on topics in special education. I'm Tal Slemrod, faculty at California State University in Chico. Each week, we talk about subjects and issues in education and special education. And this week, we're going to continue our expanding our topic on inclusive education in the public school systems and elsewhere in society and the history of it. And uh, each week we bring in guests to share their expertise and stories. And this week we have a fantastic guest, Dr. Catherine Lemmy, from here at the California State University School of Education. And I will throw it over to Catherine to introduce herself and tell us a little bit about herself. Sure, and thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. I'm Catherine Lemmy. I am a new faculty member here at Chico State. I teach literacy development, and I also teach equity and access. And I was a high school teacher at a large comprehensive high school in California for five years teaching science uh, at many different levels, mostly biology, uh, some integrated science and some environmental science. And I was teaching in a school that was very linguistically heterogeneous, many different languages, students from all over the world. And they were, many of them were in my classes. And so I developed this interest in how to serve those students uh, best and most equitably through my teaching practice, because our school was very interested in trying to support those students, uh, but we still faced some challenges and there were many different perspectives and views on on what we should be doing in the classroom to provide them with really excellent and equitable education. So my research is sort of around how teachers view students who are designated as English learners or who are multilingual students or bilingual students and how those views and beliefs about students might influence their practice. And so I'm happy to talk with you today. Awesome. About that. Yay, thanks. <laughs> um, so one of the things that we're learning in our class is when it comes to equity in education, for my class, it's really around special education, but it's all related in that history of equity of education in the United States. And it's really, you know, as we were talking just before we hit record, um, you know, the, the history is actually pretty short, right, where we're thinking about the post-civil rights movement that you'd think common sense-wise, oh, sure, we should have equity in the classroom and in education and services available, but we know it's actually a pretty new thing. Um, And maybe could you share just a little bit about your own knowledge or expertise on, um, on equity in education, whether it's, you know, of course, for me, special education, but for you, English language um, learning, and how you've you know, you've seen that. Sure, sure. So I'll start with a little bit of history to try to keep it brief. Um, But as you, as many of you know, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 told us that we cannot discriminate against people based on race or color or national origin in any federally funded programs. So that means we can't discriminate in schools, in public schools, um, against people based on race. Well, there's nothing in there about language yet in 1964. So in the 70s, in the early 70s, there was a group of Chinese American students, students of Chinese origin, um, thousands of them, who brought a class action lawsuit against the school district for not serving their students, not providing their students with 
uh, appropriate access to the curriculum because most of those students were sitting in classrooms where it was English immersion. So they were getting math and science and history all in English. And these may be students who immigrated from China the previous year. So the lawsuit alleged that they were, not, they were discriminating against these students by not providing them equal access to the curriculum. And so this went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court eventually decided that it was true, that does represent discrimination, and that um, this landmark case pretty much established that if you're discriminating against someone based on language, that's tantamount to discriminating on against them based on national origin. So this is what really put into place the idea that schools have to provide supports to students uh, to help them develop their English and also in the service of helping them develop their content knowledge. And so the schools have to provide ESL courses to all students and different ELD courses. And there are all different kinds of classes now that students have access to and different supports based on their English level. And that all comes down to the, the Lau v. Nichols case. So what we have right now in the classroom, in my personal experience, I was teaching a quote-unquote mainstream class that had English learner students in that class. So the students are, the way that you get classified, tell me if I'm, um, if I'm answering your question, but the way that you get classified as an English language learner is you, you, your parents fill out a form when they enter you in school and it says, what language do you speak at home? If you put, I speak Spanish at home, then you have to take the CELT test, which I think now has a different name, but the English language development test, and then you get placed and they, they rank you and you get, a, you know, you get all these labels placed upon you. But the idea is it's trying to provide you access with services. And so the students that I was teaching, many of them were quote unquote higher level English learners, but they were in my courses. And so there are many different ways that teachers try to provide supports for them. But I, I found that sometimes those supports were actually causing more harm that I thought than good. For example, um, giving them something with a lower reading level that might unintentionally have a lower content level as well, or giving them vocabulary words that might be too, too focusing the content, the class too much on vocabulary production and not necessarily on the fascinating, cool. Um, high-level science content. So, um, so one of the questions that you know I still grapple with is how do we, if we know that it's it's legally required for schools to provide these supports to students, what does that look like, and how do we do that effectively so that we're not accidentally, unintentionally making the problem worse, and that we're really providing them with high-quality educational opportunities? You just hit so <laughs> many of the same issues and keywords that we talk about in special education, you know, supports and services and, you know, the really what's the learning goal? Is it the vocabulary? And that the vocabulary often is the, the barrier, the hang up, right? And we see that in um, specifically for science because it's so vocabulary heavy that we kind of forget about the science and that science is really cool. Um, so I think and one of the things that we were talking about before we hit record was you know, the fact that, and we had mentioned, I mentioned in a previous podcast that services is a service and support is a service and not a location. So um, you were saying that a lot of what the services and supports that you provided were in your general education mm -hmm. 
classroom. So do you have maybe a story of what that maybe looked like or a student that you particularly like, aha, yay, or something that was meaningful that worked for you? Sure. Um, what I tried to do in my classes was give students as many opportunities to talk with each other in social ways. So just boosting the social learning as much as possible um, among students, sometimes grouping them with similar language level peers and sometimes grouping them with different language level peers so that they both get a chance to talk with someone who's, who's, who has similar language skills or maybe a similar language background, so maybe they could switch into Spanish or, or another language if they share that language background, and also pushing them and challenging them, working uh, with a variety of different students in the class. And um, we also provided students with a lot of um, things like sentence frames and word walls and a lot of you know reading things aloud or kind of close reading shorter passages we used uh, a website called, called News ELA, which is uh, really great, and your school district does have to pay for it, so luckily our district had a subscription to this, but it provides really high-interest news articles that are relevant topics, a, a range of different topics, and you can print these out at a variety of different reading levels, so your students can work ideally slightly you know, above or at their their... Um, I mean, it's problematic to, to, to talk about reading levels, but like if it's something where you want to be able to provide multiple different texts, the same text in multiple different reading levels, you can do that so that students have access that way, um, where you're ideally you're, push, you're encouraging them to, to select something that is um, challenging for them. But for me personally, I, I really think the social learning aspect is the most important, getting them... Um, talking in ways that are exciting, talk about getting them talking about ideas that are exciting and weird and gross and challenging and controversial, um, giving them topics to talk about that they can't not, you know, engage with because they're so interesting and then, um, and then providing them kind of supports to, to do those conversations with a variety of people in their class. So I think one of the cool things that, again, I'm seeing in the overlap is the goal of changing and modifying the curriculum and letting students be in the same classroom, right? Versus, you know, the problem that we have in special education is that idea of, you know, putting the students with special education or different learning needs in a different classroom and, you know, classically the, the back portable, right? Mm -hmm. And so this idea of inclusion and that's really changed in the last few decades so in special education, one of the things that we talk about is where were, were these students prior to inclusive education and they were in um, separate schools or just not allowed in schools at all. Mm. So um, this is really pre the civil rights movement um, and even to some degree post. Um, so for students that were, had different language learning needs, where were these students prior to this situation. Yeah, they were just in the classroom all in English. It was sort of sink or swim. Um, the idea was immerse you in English and you will learn, which we know is not true. <laughs> People need supports to be able to, especially, you know, the type of English that tends to be spoken in school where you're getting specialized terminology and different grammar and structures and things like that than you would get, you know, in your everyday life. Sink or swim does not work. And so... Um, and it's really inequitable to do that. 
So, um, yeah, I mean, now there, there definitely are classes. The ELD1 and ELD2 classes are, are typically what students have in the beginning of their, when they first, you know, enter the school system in the United States, they would be in those, and they have two, usually two years there, and after that, they're typically mainstreamed, and mm-hmm. so they, they have a set, they have one period a day where they're with their ELD class, I believe I'm telling you correctly, <laughs> you can correct me if I'm wrong, but my, my courses that I was teaching were freshman biology, freshman, um, Integrated science, and then the the EL designated students were in there with cool. everyone else. Yeah. <laughs> um, thinking about you know providing services for your students regardless of language or ability, are there any myths or misconceptions that you think that's mm-hmm. important for the students listening to really to really know? Uh, one myth that I hear a lot is that you know the language comes before the idea that you have to learn certain terms or terminologies in in biology for example you know cell mitochondria cell wall that these terms have to come first and then they can develop the ideas and I and I actually really encourage people to switch that around and um, get their students engaging with ideas in any way that makes sense and works for those students and then add the language at the end so they they might look at pictures of cells they might look at an onion cell under a um, microscope and build a cell model first and learn the the words at the end rather than Mm -hmm. front-loading the vocabulary Um, another myth might be um, that Sometimes unintentionally, people conflate language level mm-hmm. with um, cognitive abilities mm-hmm. and um, unintentionally treat someone who is an English language learner as if they are um, less smart, right. you know, than mm-hmm. everyone else in the class. And so, um, really interrogating our own kind of assumptions that we make when we hear someone with an accent or someone who's learning English, and how how are we? What kinds of questions are we asking that student? Are we um, making assumptions based on what language they speak? Are we treating our Spanish speakers the same as our Chinese speakers or Mandarin and, and Cantonese speakers, or are we making assumptions based on that language alone uh, that we're not aware of? So, yeah, those are two. Awesome, <laughs> and I think you know. We see the same thing with kids with disabilities, where this um, idea where people think that students with disabilities can't can't learn, or they can't learn the material, and I'm sure you saw it in your own classrooms as a science teacher, that um, absolutely they can, right? Mm-hmm. And, I, mm-hmm. and so I think it's, what's cool for me is to, to hear the overlap and a lot of the same myths and issues and um, ideas between um, the different groups of students. On a last note, is there anything else that you would like students to know about education, about inclusive education, um, you know, more, you know, uh, narrowly focused on, well, on anything you want, but maybe on the, you know, post-civil rights or mm. area or idea of education? Um, I mean... I don't know if this is sort of what you're looking for, but my biggest sure. like thing that I w- try to communicate to my students who are becoming teachers 
is you have to get to know your students and their community as well as you possibly can to be able to teach them effectively. You know their names, know how to pronounce their names, understand as much as you can about their experiences, and try to separate yourself from the assumptions and the stereotypes that you've been taught, because we all have um, throughout our lives, and see those people as individuals. Um, and the more you know them and build community with them, the better you'll be able to teach them. I think what's cool what you just said was something that's come up in every single podcast so far is when I did the one with the special education faculty, we were talking about IEPs and then that the individual component of it. And again, last week um, in the conversation that I had with Rebecca, Debbie, and Angela is remembering education is all about the individual. And here you mentioned again, so I think (laughs) three different occasions with three different sets of teachers and faculty that it's all about the eyes, all about the, the individual and working with and teaching the individual students. So. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah. Well, I'm glad I confirmed all three of the other people. <laughs> I think so. So on that note, that is this week's episode of SPEDcast. So thank you for listening, and thank you very much, Dr. Catherine Lemmy, and uh, join us again next week. Thanks again. Yes.